Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host and comrade Danny uh, Danny Bessner, and we are uh, very lucky to welcome back to the program returning champion Spencer Ackerman. Spencer is a columnist for the Nation. Uh, there's so many things to say here. Spencer's columnist for the Nation. Uh, he a is the publisher of, of the Forever Wars newsletter. He is a beautiful soul. He's also writing the uh, Waller versus Wildstorm series for DC Comics. Uh, he has a book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, which we've talked about previously on the show. Uh, and he has a new column at The Nation, U.S. Foreign, foreign Policy Has an Extinction Agenda. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me back, you guys. Spencer, first question, where do you find the time? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. It uh, seems to be increasingly sparkling out of my control, but it is... Hopefully getting better now that uh, school is back and my daughter is not going to run into this room at any moment to have me do God knows what. Wow. You support school. Oh, my God. Just just all the all the teens listening. We disagree with that. It's about to happen to you, Danny. Just wait a couple years. (laughs) Yeah. Once you get into high school, though, they just lock themselves in their room anyway. So you don't really have to worry about them. Wandering in, uh, I found. Uh, <laughs> I hear they're always on screens. That's grab that's the phone from from the dads on the block. <laughs> I mean, who am I? That's definitely true. Yeah. So, uh, Spencer, to get into your piece, what is U.S. foreign policy's extinction agenda? What are we talking about here? So it became kind of increasingly difficult for me not to kind of flip my shit about the way in which over the past two years in particular, but I guess, you know, truly stretching back through the Trump years, um, the U.S. foreign policy apparatus in both parties and in the security services have really coalesced around the idea of what is functionally a Cold War with China with a enormous, um, but not, not fully bipartisan um, I guess is the way to put it, cohort overlapping with a second Cold War against Russia, maybe a resumed Cold War against Russia, shorn of previous ideological and material commitments from the first Cold War. All of this coalescing rapidly at a time in which, on more or less a weekly basis at this point, if not more, we get ever more urgent reminders that the climate is increasingly uninhabitable for more and more people around the world. And all of this seems like a ship that's sort of drifting into multiple storms while insisting that it is performing the only responsible stewardship that circumstances present it. And it just became, while the devastation of uh, Maui was occurring last month, it can be difficult to parse precisely how much climate change is attributable to that, but it's not not. To, to point to the fact 
from something of a of a thirty thousand foot perch that I don't in my work typically try and um, operate from that we have truly an existential threat to humanity happening that U.S. foreign policy is on one level equipping itself not to address and on, I think, a deeper level, particularly when you look at the history of what the first Cold War was, setting itself up in a worse fashion to be able to foster or orient itself toward the kind of unprecedented global cooperation that's necessary, not even to fix the problem, but just to address and mitigate it. And that, I think, is the wages of what um, the Biden administration, um, like the Trump administration before it, is embracing as great power competition. This delusion that we will still somehow avoid, you know, either massive outright wars in the first island chain um, in the Pacific, proxy wars, uh, resource wars outside those major metropoles. And then finally, that you don't have to choose from a strategy perspective between these cold wars and redressing climate catastrophe, which is an express point repeatedly made in the Biden administration's national security strategy. I was just going to say, they say it all the time. It's the like, time. we're going to fight with China, but don't worry, we'll still cooperate on areas that need cooperation. So, Spencer, I, I want to start first from our side, because one of the things that's been the most appalling to me is the way that the liberal left has lined up behind the Biden administration's basic war in, in Ukraine. And, and I was just wondering, why do you think that in the wake of, you know, the disastrous last 20 years of U.S. foreign policy and this coming climate catastrophe, there's been such a willingness to line up behind the imperial war machine with really no questions asked? It seems very strange and disconcerting to me, because if the United States is just supposed to be the empire for now and forever. It's clearly not going to be able to address the actual challenges of the 21st century. It'll still be existing in this atavistic framework of great power competition. It'll still try to get full spectrum dominance on, uh, for a two front war, all of these things. So as someone who is, you know, I'm on the West Coast and here people don't give a shit about anything. But as someone who's on the East Coast where people talk about this, what, what's your take on how the Biden administration was able to gin up such support for this policy? I think, you you know, this might be unsurprising coming from the guy who writes about the war on terror all the time. But uh, the Ukraine war presents, at least on the face of it, a surface narrative of a traditional, for lack of a better term, enemy doing something appalling, unjustifiable, and the United States uh, positioning itself on the side of the violated party. It's, and I think this is the heart of it, the Iraq war in reverse, that this is a way of washing away the uh, moral and material sins of the war on terror and the broader strategy of American primacy um, behind it to kind of recover an American self-conception that liberals in particular want to hew to 
tremendously. And once accepting that framework, you don't have to ask deeper questions. Most importantly, the most important question about the Iraq war, how does this end? How does the war in Ukraine actually end in a way that benefits Ukrainians, that keeps them safe and free and out from uh, the domination of Russia or essentially a client relationship with a NATO that is still determined to be like you can with this Augustinian position of like, maybe you can join, but we still recognize that that is still unacceptably provocative. So maybe not, which keeps Ukraine in the crosshairs. And then once that narrative uh, gets embraced, it becomes uh, easier to both ignore, uh, I think, the imperatives of the messy, uncomfortable um, global cooperation that um, is necessary against climate change, including with uh, so-called U.S. adversaries, and to think, as the Biden administration does, that you don't actually have to make any hard choices about this, that somehow we can call a pause diplomatically over, um, in the case of Ukraine, in the case of Russia, I should say, a quasi-proxy war, however you want to characterize it. Yeah, I was about to say that, and then I like pulled back a little. I mean, it kind of is, you know. Kind of is at the same time, yeah. But something in which like NATO is not a direct combatant, but it's not not one of the principal actors here. It's like the Eucharist, like you you gestured toward earlier. (laughs) You know, I like to... I like to put it this way again, um, you know, probably in a you know predictable way, given um, what my what my background is professionally. But like the U.S. and NATO, well, actually, let's just stick to the U.S. The U.S. is to Ukraine what Iran was to the U.S. occupation of Iraq. Uh, it is an accelerant of the conflict while not fully being a combatant within it. It provides material resources that makes resolution to the conflict that much more difficult and all the more frustrating to the occupying power. And from there, you also have a strategy of economic limitation and military containment with China that most of the rest of the world pretty clearly doesn't, as with you know the U.S. narrative about the Ukraine war, pretty clearly doesn't want. It doesn't want to have to, I think, you can see even Fiona Hill in a recent speech put this really plainly, that um, what we tend to think about as the rest of the world simply is the world. And they wish not to be forced into these binary block um, hardening choices that U.S. foreign policy is increasingly predicated on producing those binary decisions while insisting that it is not actually doing any such thing, and simply America is is you know the the right choice um, in this great power competition. And the idea that we would be able to just kind of call a timeout with China and Russia to mitigate climate catastrophe, which involves really serious material choices that are inextricable from the strategies that each of these three hegemonic or potentially hegemonic or regionally hegemonic entities wish to um, put forward. 
Um, none of this seems realistic. And all of this also seems like it, from an American perspective, uh, lacks the imperative of urgency that every aspect of climate science and institutions like the IPCC are, you know, pointing at, you know, like the Judge Judy meme and saying it simply must be dealt with if we have any chance, not of avoiding a warming world that's out the window, but of avoiding a world beyond a rise of 1.5, and a half degrees Celsius, pardon me, that will spare humanity possibly the worst of what an increasingly um, uninhabitable climate will be. And it felt like without sort of putting um, these strategic choices in terms this stark, that the drift is just going to kind of continue unimpeded. And that seems like whatever else it does, it sacrifices most of humanity to uh, a world in which less and less of it can be habitable, fewer and fewer resources will be available to the masses of people that will be compelled to make migrations that are quite possibly unprecedented in recorded history. Spencer, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what what is going through the heads of U.S. policymakers, maybe, but specifically with respect to China. I think we can can dig into the I mean, you know, we're we're two plus years now, almost three years into the Biden administration where the, the constant refrain has been we can compete with China, but still work with China on these key issues. There is no evidence to me that that's been done or that's been achieved. You know, the U.S. imposes these economic uh you know, penalties on China. We impose export controls. Uh, we try to say that that's siloed off into just sort of military equipment and uh, it's not a broader attack on the Chinese economy. But it nevertheless affects the Chinese government's willingness to talk to the U.S. And without the, the U.S. and China being on the same page, there is no hope of, corral, you know, corralling climate change. We had the great spy balloon freak out of 2023, which was the most one of the most absurd things, even in the annals of absurd U.S. foreign policy or national security discourse that I've ever seen that led to months of just no contact whatsoever. Nothing. The U.S. is now having to send envoys. We sent Blinken. We sent Gina Raimondo. We sent Janet Yellen, John Kerry to just rebuild, just get back to the pre balloon status quo in terms of having some periodic communication. So I wonder, first, I have a follow up to this, but first, maybe, you know, let's talk about what the actual record here is versus this rhetoric of, well, we can do both. What's the actual record that we've seen? The record is terrible. The record is, I feel, really clear in demonstrating that we can't and won't do both. And we can't and won't do both precisely because antagonizing China is first, a strategic choice that, that the United States is making. Second, an unnecessary choice where the stakes are not survival, but continued primacy, uh, which is a dubious choice. Um, and thirdly, historically speaking, the record of the prior Cold War and the record of the ongoing but now um, kind of cast into 
the memory hole of the war on terror is that all of these choices make these particular decisions harder and harder to reach. They put everything further off the table. They make it a diplomatic trade-off to even resume baseline communication as something that just diplomatically need not be put at risk. And I'm not saying in this column that the abandonment of great power competition will, you know, magically unlock uh, new climate cooperation. I'm saying that it would buy space for that to potentially happen, that the U.S. is putting obstacles to, frankly, the survival of much of humanity and the maintenance of, you know, to be a little bit, you know, grandiose civilization as we know it, when on the other hand, what we would get out of this is maintained primacy that's already going to be difficult to sustain without punitive economic and military measures. And this seems like not really a choice at all. It seems like the maintenance of an American delusion that's necessary for the preservation of the interests of American capital. And that record of what those things achieve is found in the devastation of much of both American democracy at home and uh, the prosperity, freedom, and safety of much of the world in the latter half of the 20th century. Why run that back? Obviously, the U.S. foreign policy community is not a monolith. There are, you know, different, everybody's got their own ideas about things. I assume that there was some element within the Biden administration that came into office really believing that they could do both. It seems like it would be it's a complete delusion to still believe that uh, at this point. But I wonder, though, and and, this is where I I was going with this. You, you, You said you talk about this is visiting. It's ensuring environmental devastation for much of the world. Is there some calculation going on here within part of the national security community or the foreign policy community that, yeah, it's going to be bad and, you know, climate change is going to be a lot of disaster is going to be really bad, but it's not going to be quite as bad for the U.S. as it's going to be for some other places. Uh, We've got the resources. We've got the, you know, we're we're positioned maybe a little bit better than some some places. Maybe we can ride it out to, to some extent. And and so the decision is to prioritize primacy for a very cynical reason, because it's going to hurt the rest of the world. Climate change is going to hurt the rest of the world worse. I think that's kind of the exceptionalist firmware that they're, you know, thinking kind of operates from. Uh, I would doubt that it would be, you know, put in those terms, it would be something that they would embrace. But, you know, from an elite foreign policy perspective, first, the fact that they haven't had those kinds of consequences visited upon them, even while, you know, wildfires rage, you know, throughout the country, uh, we just watched Maui get destroyed. It's not home for them, and it won't be home for them. One, one thing that's increasingly clear about the climate crisis is that we don't all suffer the same, and we won't all suffer the same. Then from You know, everything that I see from my interactions with the national security community, 
And this is one of the reasons why, as someone who is, quote unquote, a national security journalist, wanted to write about this in these contexts, the quote unquote national security community does not see this as their problem. They see the insurance of primacy as their problem. They see the maintenance of traditional American security prerogatives and American geopolitical prerogatives. They wouldn't say capital prerogatives, but these are downstream of those as their job, as you know, what they study, what uh, their career paths depend upon, what the questions that preoccupy them are and what they're called upon to address are. Climate is siloed from out of that. Every now and again, uh, there's an event that makes them go, oh, well, yes, you know, of course, and we also have to deal with this, but not in such a way that makes them think, oh, well, the U.S. military and its overwhelming, you know, carbon footprint at the same time as its operations don't necessarily redound to the benefit of those who host them. Uh, you can see this, you know, in Guam, where both climate devastation and persistent, frankly, political peonage exists, colonization. Um, and you can see it like really dramatically in Hawaii, where the Navy, through its uh, leaky fossil, fo uh, leaky um, fuel infrastructure, poisoned a tremendous amount of the water supply, even on the, you know, naval stations in Hawaii, those that are on Oahu and not Maui, but still, and didn't come to the rescue and aren't coming to the continued uh, rescue and rebuilding of those who are on Maui. One of the most amazing stories that uh, came out of this, you know, horror in Maui was how residents bootstrapped their own responses when people were stuck on the beach or in the water while the headquarters of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command is a hop, skip, and a jump on, a, on, on the next island over. And U.S. foreign policy thinking, U.S. national security thinking, U.S. Um, military habituation hasn't really connected all of these things together because it doesn't need to. Um, I think this is one of the indications of how undemocratic U.S. foreign policy and U.S. national security really is, where the military um, gives emergency briefings about, you know, its response to Maui is basically facilitating FEMA access and saying, like, well, we've done everything we could. Um, we're helping recover the dead uh, from uh, the water in order to identify people, but not with, you know, the crucial tasks that people um, were pointing out on social media, including someone who was part of the hurricane response. And I think it was 1991 or 1992 saying, you know, the military did emergency construction, they got water in, they got housing in, they were able to mitigate, you know, the homelessness uh, that existed, you know, during that hurricane, and now is just simply not doing that. Uh, while if you look at, you know, the press releases over the course of August, and now early September, from Indo-PACOM, they all have to do with uh, containing China. That's where its focus is. That is a microcosm 
of where I think the U.S. national security community is on this issue. And I would also add to that, I'm curious what you think. I mean, it, it does seem that the people who pay attention to this, what, you know, Gabriel Allman would call the attentive public, supports the U.S. national security state's agenda. You know, we were talking earlier about the liberal left and even some of the nominal left basically, you know, arm the good guys against the bad guys, not seeing how this is part of a larger structure. I, how does one not just get blackpilled? about all of this stuff. To me, you know, just looking because at you it can't. objectively. Because, because, because hundreds of millions of people around the world are not going to be able to afford that. Like there's, solidarity is an emotional choice as well as a material one. And I think we have to stay with that. You know, we deal with the climate crisis because there's no choice. This is, this is what it is to be like in an existential conflict that, you know, it, Despair is everywhere, and it's also a luxury. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that it's, you know, that that's not something that, you know, I have to remind myself. You know, this is, you know, an, an emotionally bleak time. And nevertheless, you, you, you. I just feel like it would violate commitments of solidarity to to fall prey to saying that, you know shit is hopeless and we have, you know, no choice but to kind of, you know, resign ourselves to our fate because it's not going to be first our fates. It will eventually be, but that primarily is going to be visited upon those who we are allegedly in solidarity with and thereby expose ourselves to not being in solidarity with them at all. So then what's what's the path forward? Because I think that the the notion, you know, the Habermasian notion that persuasion will lead to policy change is not correct, given the anti-democratic nature of the American state. So what does one actually do if we're moving from theory to practice? H how would one actually? I don't it's not even a matter of persuasion. This is the problem, right? Like persuasion won't probably won't work. Voting yeah. probably won't work. Organizing probably won't work. So if we're going to take the, you know, we're op optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect, we're on the pessimism of the intellect part. What do you, does one do, actually? I, I think what you start with is delegitimizing the concept of great power competition and do so by putting it in direct contrast with the idea of uh, mitigating climate emergency and then orienting U.S. foreign policy through grassroots pressure, I, I fully concede how minuscule uh, that pressure has always been considering how undemocratic U.S. foreign policy is. But nevertheless, putting forward consistently um, a foreign policy of the left that privileges, that, that, that says like the central task right now is through making the centerpiece of American geopolitical strategy, American grand strategy, um, the mitigation of the climate crisis through delegitimizing forces within the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party who don't, who are unwilling to go in that direction. Shame is powerful. I am not willing to give up on the prospect of democratic socialism. I won't say the record looks great right now, but pretending as if there are alternate structures in place that could also scale up 
to challenge this is is even less in abundance. Um, yeah, so- I hear it on the left sometimes. Like people pretend there's an international left, and there is in our imagination, but there isn't structurally. And so I feel like we we need to be like extraordinarily realistic about where we are. And it's it's barely anything. So this is this is the big issue. And so given that there's no international left. What does one do in that situation? Build one. Build one really fast. I I, I don't. But how? Right. Like this is. This is exactly. I'm a yeah. foreign, I'm a foreign this is this is the this like, is the I'm conversation not, we've been having. I've been having it for 15 years at this point, yeah. right? Like it's just, and then and then there you hear like Pollyanna-ish takes on the left, which is it's just it's it's just a very frustrating moment, as, as sort of my stammering suggests. I just don't see where to go. And the at Bernie was a hail mary pass that we were hoping to basically get past 70 years of leftist depression and have someone be king for a minute and maybe we could help uh, him, you know, <laughs> do his kingly duties. But absent that, it's extraordinarily bleak. Yeah, I'm not going to deny it's bleak right now. It's bleak out there. Um, I, I will say one thing about your, you know, your point about there not being an international left. Did you guys listen to the Dig um, episode with AOC after she came back from her trip to Colombia, Chile, and Brazil? One of the things I took away from that that interview was her relating, hearing from the left in these countries that the American left doesn't show up for them. And that the structural weakness of the American left is an enormous problem and a consistent one for whether you want to call it an international left that hasn't coalesced or the left in these various countries that is both seeking to coalesce and has an urgency beyond behind that coalescence, I think that is something for us. We keep coming back to what I think is not unfair of you to call Pollyannish solutions, but, uh, you know, I don't really see any alternative to building those either, recognizing both the fact that it's like, you know, 11.59 and 55 seconds on the doomsday clock, and everything that goes along with, you know, the structural weakness of, of, of where we are. I, I, the, the, the blithe answer that I, that, I, that I typically give as a journalist is I'm not here to solve your problems. I'm here to problematize your solutions. Right. But but if you think about the theory no, know, of journalism, the theory of communicative action was like the communication was the action. Yeah. <laughs> turns out turns it doesn't out turn out that way. Turns out yeah, out. The whole, that whole yeah. liberal theory was wrong. Right. Turns Which, out. again, brings us to the limits of politics. Right. This is this is you ultimately come up against the limits of politics and we don't know how to break through those limits. This is the big problem of the left in the United States facing a potentially existential climate catastrophe, as I see it. That is the diagnosis of the problem. We're at the limits of politics. Yeah, I'm afraid I couldn't solve this one in one column, guys. <laughs> Just like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't I don't know what you do uh, if the left is, uh, the, you know, the, the left, such as it is in the U.S., uh, can't break away from the Democratic Party. And it, it just never seems to be willing to make that break and it's particularly not going to not willing to make that break now because of course 
uh, you know, the alternative is is Cheeto Hitler. Most uh, important election of our lifetime, again. guys. Yeah, it's you know, it's always the most important election of our lifetimes. And I, I just don't know. I, I don't I mean, you're you're always it's always going to be weak and ineffectual as long as it's strapped to lash to the uh, the this party that is just fundamentally not of the left in any conceivable way. Yep. I don't disagree with that. This is not going to be the episode that points. The way- <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to solve this. Come on. What's this on this, you know, on, on, on this episode? <laughs> So let's let's take it back maybe to your piece and um, maybe we could talk a little bit more about what we're looking at, what what the future looks like if the U.S. I, I, I keep coming back to the U.S. and China. These are the two countries that are indispensable to solving this problem. But if the U.S. and China can't figure out a way forward to actually address climate change, what what are the kinds of things that that we're we know we're going to be looking at this isn't speculation we know uh what's going to happen here if if we do nothing so we saw as a result of various uh tendrils of the war on terror in the 2010s a migration of millions of people in desperate situations uh from the middle east uh syria libya before that iraq that convulsed and buckled Europe and the United States in terms of moving the politics of those countries in a far more reactionary direction, putting an already weakened and splintered left on more of a back foot and more of uh, a lack of alternative to electoralism that, as you guys have pointed out, doesn't really touch these problems in their accident state. That's an appetizer. Imagine all of that happening, scaled up enormously, while at the same time, um, you have the, I think, increasing shift of capital toward illusory green capital solutions that will um, preserve their advantage while not redressing what it looks like when suddenly... The U.S. and Europe and, you know, other countries as well, but certainly the U.S. and Europe, Australia as well, have to absorb migrations from millions and millions of people. I'm here in New York where the day before we're recording this, our touched mayor, Eric Adams, had a freak out uh, saying that uh, the amount of migration that New York is accepted to absorb will destroy New York as we know it. Politicians will once, as I I think I'm trying to point to in the column, once we foreclose on whether you want to call them solutions or whether you want to call them strategies that at least absorb, that at least preserve the possibility of solutions, as we foreclose upon them, politicians will turn in increasingly reactionary directions and treat the world like a resource war and treat the country like a resource war. You know, what will it mean for the United States when the six states that get water from the Colorado River can't continue to maintain uh, the level of just basic 
infrastructural hydration that they need that uh, that that you know giant U.S. agricultural concerns are accustomed to. All of these problems compound. None of these problems can be dealt with through great power competition. But proxy wars for resources in the already plundered periphery are viable options. They are familiar options. They operate both by material incentive and by muscle memory, and they become all the more attractive when um, cooperative solutions uh, get foreclosed upon. I don't think any of this is out of the realm of possibility. I think all of this can pretty much be counted on um, in the next decade and beyond. And as the IPCC keeps reminding we are running out of time. We're running out of time extremely rapidly. Uh, on that happy note, I think that's a good place to end this discussion. Spencer Ackerman, uh, again, check him out at The Nation. Check out Forever Wars. Check out uh, Waller versus Wild, uh, Wildstorm. And uh, it's been, uh, as always, great to have you on the show, Spencer. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I couldn't solve this in a column, but the comic book, yeah, <laughs> the comic book may may be the solution. Jermaine solutions. Look to the comic book, frankly. Look, look to super heroism, basically. <laughs> Thank you, guys.